Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Rebecca Robbins is off today. It's Thursday, August 27th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, it has been a chaotic week at the FDA between an accusatory Trump tweet and a controversial press conference. We'll break down what happened. Next, our colleague Lev Fasher joins us to discuss Trump's war on the FDA and what it means for the agency's future. And finally, this podcast has long missed an Elon Musk angle. We are fixing that this week with an in-depth look inside Musk's brain science tech startup. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. So, Damien, it's been a tumultuous week uh, at the FDA. And like so many D.C. dramas these days, it started with a Trump tweet. That's right. So on Saturday morning, a lot of us woke up to see that the president had accused the Food and Drug Administration of delaying the development of coronavirus vaccines and drugs for political reasons. I won't do an impression of the president, but the tweet read the deep state or whoever, over at the FDA is making it very difficult for drug companies to get people in order to test the vaccines and therapeutics. Obviously, they are hoping to delay the answer until after November 3rd, must focus on speed and saving lives, exclamation point. Yeah, you know, so I was so looking forward to a relaxing weekend away from work. But of course, this tweet drops like a bomb on Saturday morning. So uh, a bunch of us at Stad had to scurry and get a story about it and get reaction from the industry. Now, obviously, there is no evidence uh, to support Trump's accusation. And, you know, the industry people that we spoke to over the weekend were quick to condemn Trump's tweet. And, you know, and they also raised a lot of concerns about the FDA's independence. You know, it's really important that decisions that are made at the FDA regarding COVID-19 treatments, you know, whether those be drugs or vaccines, are based on science and the data and not about politics. And I think actually that reaction, just sticking to Saturday alone before things escalated, It's kind of interesting and it illustrates how the FDA has a different relationship with the industry it regulates than I think a lot of other regulators in the United States. When you talk to people at biotech companies and specifically biotech investors, they rely on what they would call a strong FDA because that establishes a gold standard by which they can base their business, their investments, etc., The idea of a a super lenient, you know, cutting the red tape Food and Drug Administration is not really something desired uh, by by at least most of the people that we we talk to who are actually regulated by the FDA. And I think that might be different for, you know, I, I don't cover, for example, the beef industry, but I assume they have their gripes with the USDA. Um, But at least in drug world, there's there's kind of an idiosyncratic relationship. And of course, Damien, this all comes at a time when drug makers are rushing to develop COVID-19 vaccines. Right. So this would be alarming, I think, to people just in general, but it's it's ratcheted up in the pressure in that there is, at least in my lifetime, really never been more attention paid to the drug development process and the FDA's role in it. So as this is all swirling around, uh, you know, in that tweet that we mentioned, Donald Trump tagged Stephen Hahn, the head of the FDA, who is at Steve FDA on Twitter. And that kind of 
I think, shined a light on on what's going on in and around there. The FDA has insisted that it will uphold the agency's standards for for vaccines and drug approvals for COVID-19. And I think notably, earlier this week, Peter Marks, who is the FDA's top vaccine regulator, told Reuters that he would resign if he were asked to approve a vaccine that you know, hadn't demonstrated the safety and efficacy that would normally be required. Yeah. And so that was our crazy Saturday. And I don't know about you, Damien, but, um, you know, I tried to go to bed at a reasonable hour. <laughs> but of course, at about 1122 p.m. on Saturday night, Trump's press secretary puts out another tweet in which she teased a news conference that was going to be held on Sunday evening at which Trump would announce a, quote, major therapeutic breakthrough on the um <clears throat> The, the um, China virus. And joining Trump at that announcement would be HHS Secretary uh, Alex Azar and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. Right. So that, that led all of this to bleed into Sunday. And, and when eventually that press conference came about, the announcement was related to convalescent plasma, which is blood plasma taken from people who have recovered from COVID-19 that would then be infused into people who are sick with the disease with the hope of treating them. And well, more accurately, with the hope of them not dying. So the announcement, which was supposed to be a breakthrough, was not exactly a breakthrough. It was the announcement that there would be an emergency use authorization for plasma, which, you know, we, we can get into this later, may not really change much about the availability of that treatment. But there's a prologue to this, which is that a lot of big name scientists at NIH and elsewhere had expressed concern that there might not be enough evidence supporting convalescent plasma to justify an emergency use authorization. Yeah, you know, Trump had touted the benefit of plasma. Uh, then we heard that the NIH had opposed this emergency use authorization. And now here we have the FDA announcing the very same thing. And again, raising questions whether or not the FDA, the agency, had bowed to Trump's pressure. So there's the debate over whether this authorization was justified by the data, um, which I think, you know, reasonable parties can disagree. Where things got problematic, however, was how the White House, but especially how Stephen Hahn characterized the benefit we've seen from this in a large clinical trial that uh, that we reported on a couple weeks ago. Here's what Hahn said at the podium on Sunday. 35% improvement um, in survival is a pretty substantial clinical benefit. What that means is, if, and if the data continue to pan out, 100 people who are sick, with COVID-19, 35 would have been saved because of the administration of uh, plasma. Yeah. And I think that just sort of ratcheted this whole thing up to like, you know, 11, because what Han said there at the White House on Sunday evening was just plain wrong. You know, I don't want to get deep into the weeds here, but the actual benefit of convalescent plasma is far less. Perhaps maybe three or or five people out of 100 would have been saved by this kind of treatment based on the data that they actually you know made the decision on. You know, and, and as I said on Twitter over the weekend and, and kind of reiterated in a column that my colleague Matt Herper and I wrote, uh, you know, I've spent 20 years as a journalist listening to writing about biotech CEOs who oftentimes make nonsensical inflated claims about the benefit of their drugs. And it was really weird, disconcerting to hear the FDA commissioner do the exact same thing. You know, like you said, Damien, you know, Han could have made a convincing case for granting an EUA to plasma, you know, without hyping the data, you know, and so it just kind of ratcheted this whole thing up higher. Right. So in the days that followed, Steve Hahn went on what I guess is not an apology tour, but but he he walked back that statement. He acknowledged that he should have been more nuanced in his description of the data. 
And he eventually got around to disputing this notion that his employees uh, are part of a deep state operation to sink President Trump, um, which I'm sure they appreciated however late it might be. But to a lot of people who were paying attention externally, it was very much too little too late. I mean, it's it's if you do your misstatement on live, possibly global television as the world is awaiting a treatment for this horrible disease, and then you do your walk back of it in a series of interviews um, with wire services and, and other media, you know, the first thing is probably going to speak the loudest and resonate the most with uh, with people who are paying attention. So the big picture implications to all of this is whether Trump's assault on the FDA and Han's response to date will do lasting damage to the agency's all important reputation with the American public. Our stat colleague, Lev Fasher, wrote a story this week on that very topic, and he joins us now to talk about it. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, guys. What a week. <laughs> so, Lev, there's long been this trope that the FDA is an organization that exists sort of outside of American politics. And I think, you know, we know that's never been 100% true. But what makes the Trump White House's relationship to the agency different from administration's past? Yeah, the FDA, it's not an independent agency, and it's not technically an apolitical agency. It's run by a political appointee. Other top officials within the agency are political appointees. But there is a longstanding culture at the FDA of trying to make decisions and advance policies based on science and based on data. And I think what's most different about the Trump administration's approach to the FDA is really this overt belief on the part of President Trump and many of his senior aides that the FDA essentially serves them, that their hopes and desires on things as specific as emergency use authorizations for specific drugs, that those things should take place at the direct whims of the administration in some cases, regardless of whether there's data to support those decisions. So we've seen this over the course of the past several months with the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. We saw it in the rollout of the blood plasma EUA. We've even seen it with a couple of top Trump aides pushing for FDA to sanction the use of oleandrin, which is a totally unproven plant extract as a COVID cure. And all of these things have kind of been cast as breakthroughs. So this isn't the first time, but the broader attitude and the broader tone with which the Trump administration speaks about the FDA is just a completely different animal. And it has longtime agency insiders who are currently there, who used to work there, scientists on the outside, a lot of people in biopharma, just very, very alarmed. So Lev, furthering this point, your reporting suggests that FDA staff were kind of already alarmed by some of the recent appointments at the agency. Tell us about these new people who are working at the FDA. So I want to highlight two recent hires. The most prominent is that of Emily Miller as the assistant commissioner for media affairs. So essentially the FDA's top spokeswoman. She's filling a role that is traditionally non-political. Traditionally, it's filled by a non-political civil servant, but she's a, a political appointee, which is itself odd. What's more odd, she is a former reporter for One American News Network. If you're not familiar, it's a, a far-right cable channel openly allied with President Trump that uh, frankly just very frequently espouses complete conspiracy theories. She has uh, a long track record as a Republican operative, as uh, a conservative media personality. She's written a couple things that I think have really alarmed folks at the FDA who, of course, want their spokeswoman to have roots in medicine and in science or just at least in you know, presenting government data 
in good faith. Uh, so some of her works include a book called Emily Gets Her Gun, But Obama Wants to Take Yours. It's about gun rights and her struggles to buy a firearm in D.C. She's written a couple Washington Times columns. Uh, here are the headlines, pardon the language, and one of them, uh, Maryland's bathroom bill benefits few transgenders, puts all girls at risk from pedophiles. I should actually say pardon the language in both because the second is new Obamacare ads make young women look like sluts. So this is a very unorthodox appointment at FDA to say the least. And it has people at the agency concerned about how the data that their agency analyzes and presents and uses to make decisions is being spun essentially to the general public. We saw that, of course, on Sunday with Stephen Hahn's dubious claims about the blood plasma mortality reductions and Emily Miller's subsequent defense of him. One other hire I'd like to highlight is that of David Gortler, who has worked at FDA previously, but is coming off a stint at the Heartland Institute, which is a conservative think tank. He's written that uh, the FDA essentially is in need of a mass firing. And it's funny because he's worked at the agency since, I believe, June, but the Heartland Institute only trumpeted his appointment there in the wake of all this controversy. And in a press release, you know, talking up how great Gortler is and how great it is that he works at FDA, they called the agency sclerotic. And they said that uh, the FDA essentially has come to serve as as a barrier to Americans accessing the most up-to-date biotechnology. So there are folks coming into the agency who you know, clearly have some extremely controversial views, many of which are just out of step with how a lot of the career scientists at FDA view their role and their job. And it's really shaken people up because, as I say, it, you know, is very, very atypical. So at the center of all this is the aforementioned FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, who has been on the job for, for less than a year. You and our colleague Nicholas Florco wrote a story about his approach to leadership at the agency. How is he different from his predecessors? I think the two big differences are, one, he is not a political person. He is not someone who has kind of come up through the system of D.C. and worked at various federal agencies and worked in government even at all before at any level. He's a career cancer doctor. And beyond that, beyond his status as a political outsider without these kind of deep D.C. roots and connections, he does not have a lot of experience around him. The senior leadership at FDA, for the most part, is very green. There have been a lot of major departures since former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb left in early 2019. So there's a view of Han within the agency that you know, I think people view him as, as a good guy and as a, a qualified scientist, but they also just don't see him as having the capability to forcefully push back uh, against these attacks from President Trump. And as we saw on Sunday, he's, you know, even been willing to play into them directly and kind of further the political messaging of the Trump administration and, you know, the Trump administration's effort to essentially use the FDA as a as a campaign tool just a couple of months out from the president's uh, reelection. So all of this stuff is foreground to something that really scares the public health world. You know, and that's the possibility that Trump will compel the FDA to approve a COVID-19 vaccine that is either unsafe, ineffective, or both. Now, Lev, you've spoken to lots of people in and around the FDA. How realistic do they think that possibility is? People at FDA view it as a distinct possibility that there would be an emergency use authorization for a COVID vaccine before the election. And the FDA is even convening a vaccine advisory committee on October 22nd, about two weeks before the election, that's going to look at some data, that's going to discuss uh, many of the underdevelopment vaccines. 
I, I don't know that uh, anyone will view a recommendation they issue as as binding. There's no guarantee that anything will will come of that meeting. And it's also an open question, even if there is an EUA before Election Day, whether that will be a, a causal link or whether there will just be a decision made that the data is there and it won't be, uh, you know, as a result of interference from President Trump. But of course, it's a it's a very, very deep fear. And President Trump has repeatedly hinted at uh, a forthcoming vaccine approval. And it's also worth noting, I think, that a lot of people closest to Trump uh, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, Peter Navarro, one of his top trade advisors, they've just taken these openly antagonistic and very public anti-FDA stances where they support the president's deep state rhetoric and they talk about things not wanting to get bogged down in bureaucracy. So, you know, there is an overt push on the part of the Trump administration to make the F- FDA move faster on all fronts. There's a degree to which I think people see that as appropriate. We're in a pandemic. 175,000 or so Americans have died. But yeah, the, the fear of a politicized vaccine approval has only, I think, grown stronger as a result of the last two weeks of total FDA chaos. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Neuralink is a neuroscience technology company founded by Elon Musk that is attempting to fuse human brains with computers. It's also a company grappling with a chaotic internal culture where a rush to meet some ambitious project timelines has conflicted with the sluggish pace of science. Earlier this week, Stats Aaron Broadwin and Rebecca Robbins published a story that offers the first revealing look inside the pretty secretive work going on at Neuralink. Aaron joins us today to talk about it. Aaron, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So most people know that Elon Musk has made his career building electric cars and rockets, but perhaps fewer know about Neuralink. Can you explain to us what the brain-machine interfaces are designed to do? Sure thing. So there is a whole history of brain-machine interfaces largely used to help people with spinal cord injuries and paralysis and other uh, forms of brain injury walk and regain some mobility. For example, um, there are certain things that help them operate you know, mechanical prosthesis. So you can be able to pick up a coffee cup by thinking about picking up a coffee cup with your mind. Um, and Elon Musk with Neuralink is also trying to create a brain-machine interface that would help people with paralysis, same type of injuries. But Elon Musk has ambitions that are much farther ranging than just helping people um, with disabilities and injuries to regain mobility. And I imagine we'll get into some of those shortly. So in the course of your reporting, you spoke to former Neuralink employees and some independent experts. So what did they tell you about the company? So I was not entirely surprised to learn that Neuralink's company culture sounds a lot like the company culture at a lot of Elon Musk's other startups, which include SpaceX and Tesla, where there's a rush and a, a real sense that, you know, engineering will kind of solve everything. That if, uh, you know, you have a project that is starting to become really, really difficult, that you abandon it and start on a new project. And basically, it's just, you know, throw a lot of things at the wall, see what sticks, and like, let's get this done. Um, and while that's worked really well for SpaceX and for Tesla, it's a little less clear whether or not that will work in the case of a company that's target is the human brain. So just over a year ago in July 2019, Elon organized a, a flashy event in San Francisco where he said that human testing of Neuralink's brain-machine interface in people with paralysis would start at the end of 2020. 
Is the company on track to meet that goal? Yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the things that I was saying at the beginning is, I, I'm sure we'll get into some of the other ambitions that Elon Musk has. And, and some of those ambitions include things like, I think he's tweeted about perhaps on Friday, revealing the quote unquote matrix in the matrix, which is a cool sci-fi reference um, for all the sci-fi nerds out there. But basically saying that he's going to use this uh, technology to reveal the nature of our reality, aka the red pill to end all red pills. And it's a little less clear whether that is actually going to happen on Friday or not. It appears, at least from the interviews that I conducted, that that they are not quite on track to do that um, because they are not on track to test their product in humans yet. And in order to, you know, deliver the red pill to end all red pills, I think that you would probably have to migrate from testing your early devices in rats, which I believe they've done, to primates, which I also believe that they've done, um, into humans. But from the interviews that I conducted, they are nowhere near ready to start um, testing in humans. Of course, the interviews that we conducted are with former employees. So who knows? Perhaps they've, you know, progressed by leaps and bounds since some of the employees were at the company. I think the jury is, is pretty out on, on exactly what's going to happen on Friday. But from what I could dig up, testing in humans is not something that's on track for Friday. So Aaron, beyond uh, red pilling people, uh, what are Neuralink's other concrete ambitions? Yeah. So the first one that we talked about is helping people with paralysis and other forms of brain injury to regain some mobility. And the idea would be putting a device inside the brain that is able to allow people to control computers, prostheses, and other forms of assistance with their thoughts. So Aaron, as you mentioned before, this is all kind of in the foreground of a big announcement expected Friday, August 28th, and we're recording this the Thursday before. So we don't know what Neuralink is going to reveal to the world about its research. And as you mentioned before, you know, it's kind of anyone's guess what Neuralink is going to announce. But, you know, having spoken to independent scientists working in the same field who are watching, you know, Neuralink from afar, What's their impression of the company and, you know, what do they think is coming on Friday? Yeah, so the majority of experts that we talk to, I'd say they're kind of split into two camps. There are the experts who are brain machine interface experts who've been studying and looking at things like BrainGate, as I mentioned at the beginning, for years and years. And those kinds of technologies like BrainGate have been out for decades. So their impression of Neuralink and what it's going to present on Friday, they come to this with a lot of skepticism, understandably so, because they're like, okay, you know, you're working on something that we've been working on for decades. Um, and then the other camp of experts that I talk to are people who say, for example, you know, I, what Neuralink is doing is amazing. Um, they are working on something super, super hard. And they're for the first time, perhaps, bringing all of this hard academic work to a semi-public stage where, you know, lay people can potentially learn about it. Um, that said, the the majority of people that we spoke to think that what Elon Musk and Neuralink might present on Friday is probably going to be focused around showing some of the research that he's done in primates and showing, for example, that the technology that he constructed can be used, which includes this uh, pretty fancy, cool robot called a sewing machine robot, which implants the electrodes into people's brains at once. Um, they think he's going to basically unveil a live demonstration of the electrodes recording brain activity and potentially seeing a primate, for example, control a video screen with its brain using Neuralink's technology. So Aaron, I'm sure you'll be watching Elon's presentation and maybe he'll be popping that red pill. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am looking forward to it.
That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado and Crystal Milner, who produced this week's episode. Alex Hogan is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us about what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not Damien should get a brain machine implant. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.